0: What a glorious truth, a glorious reality as we gather to worship and remember all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus through His life, death, and resurrection. It is a kindness, a grace of God to bring us together to turn our hearts and focus upon Him this morning. As you turn in your Bible this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22 this morning. I do want to ask you a couple questions this morning. I want you to be thinking about, even as we prepare to look at this text together. And I I want to plead with you. I want to ask you, take these questions to heart. Don't just kind of uh, gloss over them and think, oh, well, maybe someone else needs this. You and I ask ourselves these questions. When someone confronts you with something you're doing wrong, what's your first initial response? Think about that for a moment. When someone confronts you with something you're doing wrong, what's your first initial response? Do you gladly receive that correction in appreciation? Do you get defensive? Do you get angry? Let me go a step deeper. Stay with me now. How do you respond when the Holy Spirit is showing you something that's not true for your life and it's not true in your worship but scripture says it must be true are you following me we've taken it a step deeper into our spiritual lives how do you respond when the holy spirit (coughs) exposes something you're doing wrong Have you ever had that happen to you before it does assume a couple things. One, that you're in the Word of God honestly. Because it's only through the Word of God God speaks to us. It's in through the Word of God. So if you're thinking and having to think, well, I don't know that the Holy Spirit has ever done that. I would, I would ask you then to examine your time in the Word of God. Because that's where the Holy Spirit does His work. But when you read something in Scripture that confronts Your lifestyle, your mindset, your worldview, how you're living, how you're thinking, your practice. And the Holy Spirit shows you this is what God demands, but this is what you're doing. How do you respond to the Holy Spirit? Or when a brother or sister in Christ, when a a pastor or spiritual leader, when, when the Holy Spirit uses these individuals to expose a glaring sin in you, how do you respond? One of the great problems that we have today is turning Christianity, true biblical Christianity, into simply a set of rules and regulations that are devoid of any true, real interaction with the living God. Did you follow me there? One of the great problems in the church today, and I'm not picking on our contemporary day. It's been true throughout the generations Turning true biblical Christianity into a set of just rules and regulations and practices with no meaningful interaction with the living God. Would you agree with that? Slowly over time, we begin to become so familiar with religious practices, with the practices of Christianity that we can just, we do them without even thinking. Am I wrong? Without even thinking about the purpose of what I'm doing is for a deeper reason with God. And we can get really, really good at the practice, really good at being in church every time I'm there and totally devoid of, we're here to meet with the living God. And the result can be a type of Christianity, which Paul will say is no Christianity at all, a type of Christianity that's comfortable with rules, that's comfortable with church, how I do it, and has no real relationship with the ruler of the church. And this is a very real issue for the church of Jesus Christ. It's a real issue for us here at Covenant Life Church, as it's a real issue for every true believer. Slowly over time, our practice of, can I say this, doing church, can get defiled by traditions, by selfishness, by pride, by I want it the way I want it. I want to do it my way. And I don't care about what God wants, what he's seeking. I'm the consumer. This is mine. And we take away true worship that this is not about you at all. It's not about me at all. It is about God. And the Holy Spirit is constantly sanctifying us through the word. Constantly showing us sin, pride, selfishness in us that needs to be, that must be put to death so that what we do here would be true religion, true biblical Christianity, truly not about me, but about God. I've come not for what I can get out of it. I've come to meet with the living God corporately. But unfortunately for some, it doesn't matter What you try to show them, it doesn't matter who tries to show it to them. We all struggle with this to one degree or another. We're hell-bent on our own idolatry of what the church should be. I want it my way. I want to sing the songs I like to sing. I want the structure to be how I like it to be. I want it to be what I'm comfortable with, what I've grown up with. Now, what I have in mind may be completely idolatrous, It's the worship of me, but I want what I want. And when confronted with the sin of idolatry, how do we respond? Are we quick to get angry? Mad? We want to kill and murder the message giver? Are we offended? Do we want to turn on the one who's sending the message and say, look here, you want to talk about me, let's talk about you for a minute. We want to deflect it. Can you think of a time you've done any of that when being confronted? If we're honest, we've all done it. And maybe you're doing it right now. Why are we beginning here? Am I trying to be ugly this morning? This is John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. This is exactly what Jesus is confronting in his own day. Let's look together at the text. John chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, quote, zeal for your house will consume me. Let me be clear on what Jesus is saying. Not zeal for the house of God consumes me. I'm passionate. He's saying this. What does it mean to be consumed? It means to be killed. Zeal for my father's house, his way, will destroy me, will consume me. Those that I get in their face and I say, this is my father's house, it's about him, it will consume me ultimately because they don't respond to correction the right way. Let's keep reading. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, which would be consumed by them. When therefore he was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, we come to You today again because we're a needy people. Because we're a people who are stiff-necked, hardened. As we think about last week's message, the turning of water into wine, we are stone pots empty by nature. And we're in great need of Jesus Christ to fill us, to sanctify us, to grow us, to conform us into His likeness. And we pray this morning, Father, that as we are just like these Jewish leaders, every one of us, that the Holy Spirit would come and do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Expose sin in our hearts. Expose pride and selfishness. We ask the Holy Spirit to come and remind us today what we can't seem to escape from that life is not about us. It is about you. It is about the glory of Jesus. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would so satisfy us in Jesus Christ that we die to ourselves, die to our pride, die to our wants, die to our selfishness. Give us hearts that are receptive to the correction of our King. And by grace, seeks to live upon who Christ is, what He's done in His death and resurrection. And we would make all of life a life of worship unto you. Father, these are audacious requests we have. They they flow so easily from our lips, but as we think about who we are and what we're wrestling with, these are audacious requests that we have. But Christ is enough. Help our unbelief this day in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to ask you a question this morning before we begin looking at this morning's text. What have you done with last week's message? What have you done... ...with what Christ manifests to us last week. And you'll remember last week we began the movement into the signs. There's going to be seven signs, miracles, but John's going to call them signs... ...because John is not excited about turning water into wine. Most of us, we read about that miracle, we ooh and ah, water to wine... ...and we think, what can God possibly do for me? And John exposed that changing of water to wine was really not about the miracle itself. It was a sign to point us to Christ... What have you done in response to what Christ chapter 2 verse 11 manifest about his glory in that? We are a culture of Christianity that dangerously misrepresents Christ in our thoughts. Even in the room like this, as I look around, I see a lot of people who knew a lot about Jesus. For many of us, our our thoughts are just not very accurate. They're not very full. Last week, we read about Christ performing the first sign to manifest his glory at the wedding at Cana. He changed the water into wine. But again, John says, that's not the point. If you leave thinking Jesus can turn water to wine, great. You've missed the point. The point is, what does that reveal about the glory of Jesus? And just to refresh your memory, what is wine symbolic of all throughout the Scripture? Joy. Thank you, Brother Larry, I saw that. Joy. Wine is a symbol of intense joy. And what does six empty stone pots all throughout? I mean, we we see John use this kind of imagery in the book of Revelation and elsewhere... Six being the number of mankind, empty stone. That's our hearts. The empty stone hearts of man, Christ revealed. He is the divine wine. He is the joy. He is the one in whom at His right hand is fullness of joy. Oh, Christians, professing Christians, who are seeking to serve Christ, but are so crabby and crusty and devoid of joy, what have you done in the last week to live upon the fullness of joy in Christ? Has there been any movement? Have you fought for the fullness of joy that comes in Christ? Christ is best, is what that miracle was about. And you can have as much of Him as you want. In Him is fullness of joy. If you are crabby and crusty, look to Jesus. You can have all the joy you want in Him. What have you done with Him? Or have we treated the Word of God like the Pharisees? We heard our message and we went home. What's Christian about that? Christianity is living upon Jesus. And if we're only hearing words in one ear and out the other and we come back next Sunday, don't bother. John writes these things. Why? Where did we begin this whole sermon series? That you may believe Jesus is the Christ. In Him is what He reveals about His glory. And believing you would what? Live upon it. I begin here with last week's message just simply to say my goodness before we begin to continue engage the glories of Christ not to pick or beat on you or berate you but if you can look back upon the past week and recognize my goodness such glory I did nothing with it then now would be an appropriate time to seek the Lord and ask him Something went terribly wrong in my heart last week. Help me. And don't let this word return void in my heart today. This passage is every bit as much about the glory of Christ as was last week, the turning of water into wine. This morning, we are not so much thinking about temples and church, though that's the context here. This is not about temples and church. This is about the glory of Christ in the context of temple and church. So what's happening in this account this morning? After turning water to wine at Cana, verse 12 tells us they went to Capernaum there and stayed with Christ's family. It's a fascinating dynamic there to think about. Jesus is still connected to his family. And then the Passover comes, the time of Passover. And so where do you go for Passover? You go to Jerusalem. So we're just following Jesus from Cana to Capernaum, and now he's on his way in verse 13 to Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting as we think about Passover here. jesus This is not the first time Jesus has attended the Passover service in Jerusalem. He's a, he comes from a good Jewish family. Uh, this is the first time in his public ministry, that he's going to Jerusalem for Passover. But uh, in the Jewish system, from, from a, I think the earliest age 12, it was mandatory. You had to go to Jerusalem to participate in Passover. You had to bring a temple tax. Uh, you had to bring a sacrifice in order to give, some kind of calf or a dove or a lamb, or for your poor, uh, it, it would have been a dove. So as Jesus is making his way to Passover, this is not the first time he's done this. It's just the first time in his life Public ministry where he is manifesting his glory on a more public scale. And what is the Passover? Again, I think we're most of us familiar. It's the commemoration of what God had done in rescuing his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt after they had been in bondage for some 400 years. The death angel comes, all the way back in that context. The death angel comes and kills the firstborn in every home except for those homes where the doorpost is covered in the blood of a sacrificial animal. The, the angel of death would come and kill the firstborn in the home in Egypt, and then when it comes upon a home where blood is covering the doorpost, they would pass over that home and go to another. And it's a picture for us, the, how God rescued Israel from their bondage in Egypt is a picture for us of how God rescues, how God rescues us. We, too, have been rescued from a slavery, not to a a nation, but a slavery, a bondage to sin. We are sinners, every one of us, myself, uh, chief among us. We are sinners who have been rescued from sin by a mighty act of God. Whose idea was it to put blood on the doorpost? Was that the cleverness of Moses? Did Moses come up with that thing? Did Aaron, hey, I think this would be, no, it was... It was God who instructed, it will be the blood through blood that you will be saved and be rescued from the angel of death, from the wrath of God that is coming over Egypt. And and they they were saved by this mighty act of God, of God's judgment coming upon others, not them. This is something we constantly need to rehearse when we think about the salvation of God's people from Egypt. Why did God rescue the Jews out of Egypt? Why did God not murder the firstborn of the Jews in Egypt? Yes, we can talk about the blood, but more fundamental than that, are the the Jews rescued and the Egyptians killed because the Jews are better? Romans 3 makes it clear, none is righteous, no, not one. The sin nature in the Jew is every bit as depraved as the sin nature in the Egyptian. So why did God rescue the Jews out of that and not the Egyptians? And it goes all the way back to the beginning of the story. The fulfillment of his promise to Adam and Eve to send a Messiah. And then God calling out Abraham out of, or of the Chaldeans and making a promise to Abraham that he's going to raise up a people, a family through Abraham and from that people will come the Messiah. The reason he saves the, the Israelites out of Egypt is because he's made a promise. Not because of anything good in them, but because of a promise he has made to himself for his glory. So that's the celebration, the commemoration of Passover. It's time for it. Jesus comes and he visits the temple for for Passover and he finds something astonishing. Now, again, this is not the first time Jesus has come to the temple. And we can preface this by saying what Jesus addresses here, he has seen before. This is not the first year this has happened. This is the first year in his public ministry. This is now the season where he didn't address it when he was 15. He didn't address it when he was 19. He didn't address it when he was 25. But now at approximately the age of 30, he comes, he's in his public ministry. Now's the time to address this astonishing scene. He enters into the temple setting, which is a big, broad, there's different, you got the outer court, the inner court, the holy of holies, and and on the outer court is called the court of the Gentiles, right? You didn't have to be Jewish to go to to the, the temple to go and pray and go and worship. God had accommodated even the Gentiles, giving an outer court where Gentiles could go and pray. But in order to go to the inner court, you did have to be Jewish, and then to go to the Holy of Holies, you had to be you know, the high priest once a year after going through all the ceremonies. But Jesus comes into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, where he expects Gentiles to be crying out to his Father in prayer. And what he sees is what he's seen before. That area where prayer should be taking place is filled with bankers and a bunch of animals. Why? Well, it was easier in that day if you're traveling a great distance. It's hard to take an animal with you a great distance. It's easier just to buy one when you get there. And when you do pay your temple tax, you have to use a specific designation of coin. You can't just bring uh, your home coin and pay you had to. You had to go to the bank and transfer that money and get the coin of the day to pay the temple tax. So these were necessary things that were in and around Jerusalem. But Christ comes to the court of the Gentiles where that place has been designated by the Father for prayer. And he sees bankers and animals there and he's consumed with a passion, a zeal. For his father's honor. This has been set aside for his father. This place is for him. This area in the court of the Gentiles does not belong to the Jews. The Jewish leaders, the religious elite, the good church folks, they don't get to pick and choose what happens in this area. This is my father's house. He's consumed with a zeal for his Father's glory. So he takes a cord, makes a whip, and he slings that thing and drives the bankers out, drives the animals out, tells those with the doves, get out of here. He clears out this area which has been designated for the Gentiles to pray to God. And this is the first of two times this happens in Jesus' ministry here at the beginning, and then the other gospel writers are going to give us at the end of Jesus' ministry. There is a difference between the two. So Jesus clears out this area, which was for his father. And can you imagine the temple leaders? Are they happy about what's taking place? No, I mean, this is how they make money. They're selling these animals. They're, 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 they're transferring uh, coins from the home base to what they need to pay the temple tax and, and they're taking a little profit on it too. You don't do business and you do it equal, right? They're making some And Jesus just drove all this out. You think they're happy? So they a- approach Jesus and ask him, explain yourself, what sign do you give us that signifies you had the authority to do this? Who gives you the right to come into our church and mess things up? We had it the way we wanted it. This is how we like it. This is how we have done church for generations. Again, this is not the first time Jesus has seen this. He's been to the temple. This is is how we do it. What gives you the right to come in here and rearrange what we're doing? Now this goes back to the question I began with. How do you handle correction? How do I handle correction? How do we handle correction? One of the uncanny fruits of the flesh is this ability to, in that moment of correction, redirect the focus away from ourselves onto someone else to save face, right? Rather than, I don't want to talk about me. Let's talk about you or talk about where the real problem lies. And that's what's happening here. It goes all the way back to the garden. Adam did it with Eve, right? She's the one who, she's the one who tempted me. Eve did it with Satan. From the beginning of mankind. Shifting blame, redirecting attention has always been the defense mechanism of mankind. Over thousands of years, I'd say we've gotten pretty good at it, haven't we? It's kind of how we operate. What about when God? God himself confronts? What about when God himself questions us? That's exactly what's taking place here in verse 18. When Jesus clears out the temple, it is Jesus, it is God himself. This goes back to John chapter 1. That's why John spends that whole opening chapter. This is who Jesus is. When you see Jesus doing different things in his public ministry, you've got to understand he's the eternal word, one with God, the same as God, yet distinct from God. In him is life and light. In him is no darkness at all. So when you see Jesus doing these things, You can't just embed upon that, well, he's just a a good man. This is eternal God doing this. Eternal God confronting us. And how do they respond? Verse 18, deflecting away from their own hearts. Who are you? What gives you the right to come in here and do what you just did? This is mine. This is ours. Well, Jesus has already explained back in verse 16 when he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He's already already explained who he is. My father's house. Who does he say he is there? I'm telling you, I'm the son of God is who I am. I'm giving you my authority right off the bat. Here's my business card. This is my Father's house. I am the Messiah. There's your answer. But of course, in the heat of the moment, they're not picking up on that. And so their attitude is to deflect away from themselves instead of addressing what Jesus has just exposed and to ask what's his authority for doing these things. These things driving out our animals and the bankers and our money-making endeavors. Think about with me what's not happening here, what's not taking place. What, by clearing out this temple, is ultimately Jesus trying to accomplish in this? To purify his Father's house, his Father's kingdom, to return it to what it's intended to be to expose the hearts of the pride, the selfishness, the self-centeredness of the hearts of the religious people, that they would see and repent and return to God. But what do we see here in their response? Is there any recognition of their sin? Is there any awareness or outward display of humility? Is there any sorrow that we see on display that, my goodness, look at what we have done. These generations, we have made this temple about us. And our way, and our wants, and our desires. Do we see any sorrow for that? No. Do we see any repentance away from that, returning to God? When Jesus confronts them, their pride, their selfishness, that they've made life, including their religious life, about them, their wants, their desires, they rebuke Him. They harden their heart against Him. So much so, They ask him for a sign to give them, to explain his authority. Why should we even think about these things? Pause there. The audacity, audacity of demanding Jesus to give his credentials. This is what defiled religion does. When we talk about defiled religion, religion, we gather together in the name of God. What was taking place in that temple? If you keep working through the corridors, you're going to find prayer and religious activity was going on. But it was defiled. It had been profaned. The religion of the Jews in this day was not about God. Even though they did a lot of religious things, it was selfish, self centered, man centered, catered to what their desires, their wants, their needs. Religion in this day had a blind eye to sin. Sin was always something somebody else was doing, not me. I'm in the right. I'm correct, don't correct me, I'm correct. Is that how we often respond to correction? Is our first instinct, our first assumption, I'm right, they're wrong, somebody else needs this. Why is our first instinct always, I'm not wrong? Because we don't understand our depraved sin nature. We don't understand that we are oozing with godlessness that apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ always does what's wrong. You can be religious. You can be sitting here this morning and have a completely blind eye to what God sees and condemns in you this morning and in me. Defiled religion produces a hardened heart, a stiff neck, won't listen to rebuke, wants to kill the message sender, wants to get away, run away, leave. Produces blame shifting. We talk slanderously. How dare they talk about this? How dare this be confronted? Why? Because what's most precious to me is me. My wants. My tradition. My comforts. What I've always known. It's all about me. And I'll pray. I'll worship. I'll sing. I'll listen to the sermon. I won't do anything with it. But I'll listen to it and I'll feel better. I'm I'm a good religious person. These people that Jesus drove out of the temple. These that Jesus got in their face, they were lovers of self, not God. But where were they? In the temple, in church, worshiping. But they were lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of greed, prideful, selfish, self-centered, and all sorts of other sins that those root sins created in their lives. And so full of it, That when King Jesus is the one correcting them, even King Jesus, they're going to put him on a cross and kill him. How stiff-necked and hard-hearted have we become when the Holy Spirit himself says, it's all about God, it's all about Jesus, and we will say, yes, but I'm going to be P.O.'d and upset and angry when it's not my way. This is what Jesus is exposing. These people had taken what God had created and set apart for himself, for his glory, for his prayer. And they had profaned it, made it common, made it a place for animals and taking advantage of people financially. They have profaned the temple. This was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to be crying out to God. And rather than weep and be broken over their sin and defiling God's, for defiling God's temple, they're fighting with Jesus. You ever do that? When you come to His Word and He just clearly lays out, here's who He is, here's what He demands, here's what you're doing, and those things don't line up. Do you ever fight with Jesus? Yes, but you don't understand my situation, my circumstances. What gives you the authority to speak to this? This, That's what's happening here. When they ask, by what sign do you show us your authority? When we find ourselves fighting against the Holy Spirit, fighting against King Jesus, fighting against God's Word, and so long as even when a a good-intending friend is coming and trying to point you to Jesus, when we fight against that person, You can know you've become stiff-necked, hardened, selfish, prideful, and oozing with it's all about me. And we all struggle with this, every one of us. The leaders of the Jews, when confronted with their sin, did they respond appropriately? No. They denied it. How do you respond? How do we respond? When the Holy Spirit exposes pride that robs God of His glory, unbelief that robs God of His glory, a slanderous tongue where we create something to protect ourselves that does not honor the Lord, immorality in our life. When the Holy Spirit confronts that, when God reveals sin that's not pleasing to him, that life is not being lived unto him, do you deny it? Do you try to change the subject? Do you quickly close the book and go on and just continue doing what you want to do? Do you question his authority? Do you question the authority of the one who God is using to show you these things? These are all knee-jerk reactions that we all do. But beloved, we profess to be the church of Jesus Christ under His rule, His reign, that we've been redeemed out of a life of slavery to sin and self and the world and bought at a great price through the cross of Jesus Christ to live unto Him. Every page of Scripture is given by God the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to grow us, to continue to set us apart unto God. Are you allowing His Word to have its effect in your life? Are you spending time in His Word? And I'm not talking about those little devotional books that give you your happy word for the day. I'm all for it. Hey, get your God's Word is given. Paul says because we are unwhole. I'm trying to think of a better word than that. We are not whole. And God, the Holy Spirit, uses His Word to make us whole unto Jesus. If you're not being exposed and having to deal with sin in your life, you're not not using God's Word correctly, and you'll continue in a life of stiff-necked, selfish, self-centered religion that will ultimately end in, depart from me, I never knew you. But, Lord, I was religious. I did. I never knew you. How does Jesus respond to their question? As you would expect, with incredible wisdom and beauty and omnipotent uh, restraint. I mean, he's got a cord of whips in his hands. I mean, if I'm thinking, man, you're challenging the authority of the Son of God, go ahead and keep using that whip, right? This is omnipotent restraint. That's my sin nature coming up. Jesus doesn't have that. Jesus answers them. This is his response. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. It's a fascinating response because in Matthew's gospel, so he says, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. This is the sign that he gives them. And Matthew's gospel, a similar situation, the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign, and he would say to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. He's condemning them. And yet, no sign will be given but this one sign I'll give you, the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now... I hope we've been together long enough. We know what that sign is, right? Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of a whale, so too the Son of Man who will be in the grave three days. Just as Jonah was resurrected, if you will, from that grave, that tomb in the bellies, in the belly of the whale, so too that's a, a sign of who Jesus will be and resurrecting from the grave after three days. And he, said, he says to them in Matthew, You want a sign? I'll give you but one. My resurrection, that's the sign. When you see when I'm going to raise from the dead. And that's my authority. To tell you and to condemn you and to correct you and to call you to repentance. The only sign I'm going to give you, he says in Matthew, is the resurrection. And that's pretty much what he says here to these temple leaders. He uses that same sign. Destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. He's talking here about the resurrection from the dead. What, what's he talking about here? Uh, they thought he was talking about the literal temple, that temple that had taken 46 years. I mean, it was still in the process of being finalized at this point. 46 years it had been worked on, and he's gonna, it's going to be destroyed. He's going to rebuild it in three days. They thought he was speaking of the literal temple. John tells us in verse 21, he ain't talking about his temple, the building. He's talking about what? Himself. This miracle is not about the rebuilding of a temple. This sign, this sign is about the one who will be consumed because of the zeal of his, for his father's house. Because people just don't want to hear the correction. But he will come back three days later. How is it that Jesus' is Jesus's body is the temple? Well, what was the temple? Going all the way back to the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God resides. God manifests his glory at the, in the tabernacle. And then when they, uh, they got to a permanent location in the temple. Well, that's what Jesus is. John tells us in John 1 that he is God. Paul tells us in Colossians nine, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God, to dwell in Christ. Also, we see in Colossians 2.9, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. So, if you want to meet with God, based on what we just read, where do you go? Do you go to a building? I see a lot of this. No. You go where? You go to a person. If you want to fellowship and commune and meet with God, you don't go somewhere. Go and look at this afternoon, Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman, where she says, our people worship over here in this place. You guys worship over here in that place. And what does Jesus say? It don't matter the place. Why? You come to a person. What we do is about a person. It is about the living God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Jesus here is saying, here is my credentials for driving out all these people from my father's house. I'm the son of God. And I realize that me correcting you and calling you out for your pride and self-centeredness and your selfishness when it comes to religion, and you've made it all about you, even I realize, not yet, it's going to consume me. I'm going to be put to death because I've made you so mad and so angry. Here's my authority. You put me to death. You put me on a cross. And I'll see you again in three days. I'll be alive and well. Because I'm God. I have the right to call the shots. I have the right to tell you how to live. Who comes back to life from the dead? Only God himself. Only the one in whom John 1 is life. And that life was the light of men. You can't put me down. You can try. You're angry. I get it. You're wrong. I'm God. Repent. Do you see the glory of Christ that's on display here? I'm going to tell you right now, these religious leaders did not see it. They heard it, and maybe like some of us with last week's message, we heard it. It went in one ear and out the ear. They did not see it, and that's the danger. That's why I asked about last week's message. It wasn't because I want to know if you really liked last week's message. I don't really care. I care more about your love for Jesus. If it goes in one ear and out the other, we are no different from these men right here who Jesus laid out before them his glory, and they didn't get it. And these men, barring a work of salvation in their hearts, they did stand face to face before the resurrected Christ in glory, and they're in hell now for it. But oh, they were religious in their lifetime. They didn't see and behold that Jesus Christ is God. And they are not. And even when it comes to his house and his religion and his kingdom, it is not about our specific wants, desires, cravings. I like it this way better than that way. I'm going to get mad if I don't get it my way. It doesn't matter. We gather together to meet, not with each other, but with one person. It's him. And the question we leave with is this. Did we please him? If I leave here today and I'm upset and I'm angry because I didn't get what I wanted, fall on your face and repent of idolatry. We came to meet with the living God. The glory of Christ. Who is the face of God. Jesus knows He's treading on thin ice. Zeal for your house will consume me. He knows He's going to get killed for this. Just like you know if God uses you as a vessel of grace and mercy to go and confront sin in somebody else. Does anyone enjoy doing that? Does anyone enjoy, now I would almost question, you might be a twisted person if you answer yes to this. But who enjoys, I've got somebody I do care about and there's just something wrong in their life. Now listen, I've got things wrong in my life too. But God is, is, is my duty, my responsibility for, because of my calling in life to go and address. Does anyone enjoy that? No, why? You know what's going to happen, right? Barring a tremendous work of grace in that person's soul, That person immediately is going to bring friction to the relationship, right? Immediately, you're probably not going to hear from that person in some time. You can bet they're going to twist it and turn it and go tell somebody else, you said this, that, or the other. You accuse them. Who do you think you are? This, that, or the other, right? Jesus knows that. He knows zeal for his father's house is going to consume, is going to get him killed. But he's driven by what? What man thinks about him, how well he's liked. No, what? Zeal for his father. That's what drives him. And that's the mark of a true believer. We talk about biblical Christianity here. It's not about what you've done in the past. It's not about, it's about your love for Christ, your love for God, your devotion to him, dying to self and living unto him. Does your zeal for the Lord so burn within you That you're willing to, all right, I'm going to have to give up some things I want. Because they're not what God wants. They're a a priority to me. They're not a priority to him. And I died to my rights when I came to him. It's him. I repent. I return. I've been worshiping at the idol of self. I repent and I return to my king. This outer court of the Gentiles, which was devoted, set apart by God, for God, for the... This part of my heart that was set apart by God for Him, I've taken it and I've used it for... I repent. I drive those things out with by God's grace. And I turn to Jesus Christ and with His help, mold me, shape me to be like Jesus. I give up my rights. Just as Jesus, the eternal Son, gave up His rights when He came to earth to die on the cross. Brothers, we've been saved... And sisters, saved to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Can you honestly say you're seeing that in your life today? The temple no longer exists. The physical structure. The temple is a person. It's Jesus Christ. That's what church is all about. If you've made it about anything else, repent. If I've made it about anything else, repent. It's about Jesus Christ. Are we profaning what God the Father has set aside in eternity for himself, for his glory, and made it all about him in the face of you? Have you profaned it and somehow made it about you and false worship? and greed, and pride, and covetousness, and haughty spirit. This sign is given, not that we think about temples and churches. It's given so we think about Jesus. He is God. He has the right to rule over our thoughts, our thinking, our lives, our churches, our work lives, our home life, our finances. He is God. And only the hardest of hearts this morning are not being confronted with the sin of pride that's in all of us this morning. How are you going to respond when being confronted? Not by me. I trust there's been enough Bible in this this confrontation as the Holy Spirit. What particular sin today have you prioritized over love for Jesus? What area are you loving yourself and your desires and your cravings and your wants more than what he wants? And maybe you've even so in your mind made it, well, what I want is what Jesus wants. Don't be quick to say that. Don't be quick to assume that. It may be, but test that objectively through the word of God. When the Holy Spirit convicts and confronts the Christian. Forsakes their sin. Confesses it. Returns to their king. So that they can give to him worship. That is true and honest. And all about him. This morning. However the spirit is working. And I trust he is. Confess your sin to God. Confess if you've sinned against another person. Confess it to them. Repent of that sin. Repentance is not just with the lips. You return to a person. Return to God. Return to Christ. Because he died and rose again to make the forgiveness of sin possible. He died and rose again. That our lives could be victorious, conquering sin and pride and selfishness, and our religion could be true and undefiled. He died for that. Turn to Christ this morning. He's in authority. He's the king. He's the sovereign. Man, I wake up in the mornings and I sure I have this God complex in me. I immediately think, I'm God. I don't use that language, but I'm planning as though I'm sovereign. Repent. Turn to Christ. See the sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as the sign. He is God. We are not.